The book of Genesis. It's the first book of the Bible, and its storyline divides into two main parts. There's chapters 1 through 11, which tell the story of God and the whole world. And then there's chapters 12 through 50, which zoom in and tell the story of God and just one man, Abraham, and then his family. And these two parts are connected by a hinge story at the beginning of chapter 12. And this design, it gives us a clue to how to understand the message of the book as a whole and how it introduces the story of the whole Bible. So the book begins with God taking the disorder and the darkness described in the second sentence of the Bible, and God brings out of it order and beauty and goodness. He makes a world where life can flourish. And God makes these creatures called humans, or Adam in Hebrew. He makes them in his image, which has to do with their role and purpose in God's world. So the humans are made to be reflections of God's character out into the world, and they're appointed as God's representatives to rule his world on his behalf, which in context means to harness all of its potential, to care for it, and make it a place where even more life can flourish. God blesses the humans. It's a key word in this book. And he gives them a garden, it's like a place from which they begin starting to build this new world. Now, the key is that the humans have a choice about how they're going to go about building this world. And that's represented by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Up till now, God has provided and defined what is good and what is not good. But now God is giving the humans the dignity and the freedom of a choice. Are they going to trust God's definition of good and evil, or are they going to seize autonomy and define good and evil for themselves? And the stakes are really high. To rebel against God is to embrace death because you're turning away from the giver of life himself. This is represented by the tree of life. Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, so if you're, if you're following along with our Bible reading plan, you're a little over halfway through Genesis now. You're somewhere in the early 30s. Um, and so I'm, I'm preaching on Genesis for four weeks, and of those four weeks, I'm, I'm devoting two weeks to the first three chapters and then two weeks to the remaining 47. Uh, so it's a little lopsided. But the reason for that is that these, these first three chapters of Genesis are some of the most important in the Bible in terms of how we understand everything else we're about to read. Because what they do is they sort of set this foundation for, for understanding who we are, why we were made, why God put us here, why God made us the way we did, and why the world is the way that it is. And last week, we, we looked at just the first chapter in the first three verses of, of chapter two, which is all about God calling order out of chaos and God creating us as his image to put in the midst of his creation and what that means for us and, and, and the implications that has for uh, what it actually means to be a human being and to be fully human. This week is chapter 2 and 3, and, and this section of the story has a very different purpose. It, on one hand, it gives us an idea of what God, uh, what it actually looks like to be living out our lives as an image of God in the world, but it also gives us a story that explains how sin enters into the world in the first place and, and what the implications of that are. So I'm going to start 
skip ahead a little bit into, into verse 15 of chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This now is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So one thing right off the bat, do you notice how God brings all the animals to Adam and lets him be the one who names them? You know, our, as my daughter plays with my church keys up here in the front row, uh, she's, she's now at the age where, you know, she doesn't just, uh, she says words, but they're not just repeating things that she's heard. She actually associates them with what they mean and understands what they're for and can use them to communicate a little bit. So, like, if she says eat, she usually means that she actually wants to eat. Sometimes she's just trying to avoid bedtime, but mostly she just wants to eat. If she says up, she usually wants you to pick her up. Um, she now can say thank you, and when, she, when you do something for her, she'll say thank you. Of course, she'll actually, she actually says this, thank you, you're welcome, all in one sentence. So she hasn't quite got that part right. But she's getting there. She knows how to thank you for things and ask for food and ask to be picked up. Uh, and, and she can tell the dog, good girl. You know, she's, she's learning those things and as parents. And, and this might just be something you do only with the first one. Maybe it's old hat by the time the second one comes around. But, but when your kid does that, right, you have that moment of joy and excitement and delight. And you think to yourself, oh my gosh, look at my kid. She's so much smarter than all the other children. She's brilliant. She's advanced. Wow, these other kids are just dummies. Oh, my gosh. Um, you know, you, you have that moment. Right? You, have that, you take delight in it. You're so excited that your child is growing and learning and, and has figured out how to communicate with you. And there is a hint of that in what God is doing with Adam as he brings these animals to him and, and, and says, name this one and name this one and name this one. There is this sense that, that God takes delight in us doing things like that. And notice as well, that that particular part of the story uh, is ongoing, isn't it? We don't actually call animals the same things that people called them thousands of years ago. We've come up with new names for them, and in other parts of the world they have new names. We still are naming all the animals of creation, and I would bet that God still takes some sense of delight in this. And this is an image of what it means for us to be the image of God in the world and be God's representatives here in the midst of his creation. And he seems to take some sense of delight and joy in that. And you know, when you read this book, you have to remember this is not, this is not a moral code. This isn't a list of rules to follow. This is, at its heart, a story. And it's written as a story. And as it turns out, your English teacher was right in high school, and you do have to learn how to recognize themes and understand what they mean and interpret them. Because 
a great deal of what we actually teach and believe as Christians is not found necessarily said explicitly in one verse here in this passage. There you go, it's settled for all time. Often it's, it's pulled out of, of themes that you find in the story. And one great example is here in chapter 2 at the very end, this bit about you know, the man shall leave his father and mother and, and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Um, that right there is essentially our, our, our basis for teaching that monogamy is, is God's plan for us. But weirdly, the people of the Old Testament don't seem to understand that, do they? In fact, there is no passage of Scripture that says, thou shalt not have more than one wife at a time. There is no law in the book of Leviticus that says it's against God's will for you to have more than one wife. It doesn't happen. So you have multiple polygamists throughout the Old Testament. And, and there's only one verse ever that mentions this in the Bible, really, and it's in the New Testament where Paul says that, that bishops and leaders of the church should not have more than one wife, but that's really a limited and specific command. And what's weird is that by Paul's time and by Jesus' time, the Jews don't seem to practice polygamy anymore. They've, they've outlawed it amongst their own people. But there's no law in the Bible that says you can't do it. So what's happening? Well, at some point, while they're in exile in Babylon, the, the Jewish scholars and theologians spend a lot of time digging through their scriptures, trying to figure out where we went wrong in the past, why God has exiled us, and what we have to do to prevent this from ever happening again. And so there is this massive religious reformation happening. And one of the things they do is they look back at the story of Adam and Eve, and they see, you know, it's kind of odd that, that God only gives Adam the one wife. That seems sufficient for him. And then, if you notice, you read through the rest of the Old Testament, and all these men who had more than one wives, when they do that, uh, it always goes spectacularly wrong, doesn't it? as any married person could have told you it would go, right? It always ends up badly, right? Look at Abraham and, and, and Hagar. He takes his second wife so that he can have a kid, and the result is he has to essentially banish his firstborn child and the mother of that child because of the family conflict it creates. Isaac seems to actually learn that lesson. Right? Isaac only has one wife, even though he's very wealthy. And in the ancient world, if you're wealthy, you take more than one wife. So Isaac manages somehow to get it, but Jacob doesn't. Jacob has four wives. He only loves one of them, uh, and that causes its own set of problems with his 12 children, leading to one of them being sold off into slavery. And that doesn't go well. Then you get to King David, and David has multiple wives, and the tension caused amongst his children because of his multiple marriages and, and the, the competing families amongst his children, essentially. That leads to a civil war. One of his sons rebels against him, actually drives him out of Jerusalem and off into the wilderness, and this war ravages the countryside. And even though David wins this civil war, his son dies at the end of it. He loses a child because of it. Solomon's multiple marriages literally lead to the splitting up of the kingdom after his death. So they look through the Old Testament and they see, you know, it, it just seems to go really badly whenever men take more than one wife. And if you look way back at the beginning, it looks like God's original intent was actually not for this to happen. And so they interpret this as God's will for us is monogamy, not polygamy. And so that thread of thought carries through to the modern day in the Christian church and in the Jewish faith. And that's just one example, but you'll find there's a lot of it. You have to actually read into the text and see what the deeper meaning is often and, and see how it plays against other parts of the Bible and read it all in context to begin understanding some of these things. Because sometimes Christianity teaches things that you can't just go to the Bible and find one verse that says you can't do this and bam, it's solved. Sometimes it's actually you have to read through the whole narrative and say, well, actually, it looks like this is what God is doing, and it looks like this was God's original intent. 
And what you'll see very often in the New Testament especially is Jesus and the disciples going way back to Adam and Eve and specifically Genesis 2 and saying, this is how God intended for things to be. And so this then is the goal. And they'll even look at the law of Leviticus and say, you know, actually these laws are not there to set the ideal standard for our behavior. These laws are like the minimum. This is the bare minimum of what it takes to be okay. They're there to contain us and minimize the damage our sin can cause, but actually the ideal is found right at the beginning. And it includes this bit about them being naked and unashamed, which is highly symbolic, but the idea is, right, there is nothing, literally nothing between them and God. And there is nothing between them and each other. Perfect openness, no secrets, no shame. You can quite literally see everything. It's a powerful image. And then things go wrong in chapter 3. So in chapter 3, verse 1. Now the snake, and notice by the way, the snake is not named Satan here. It's just the snake. The snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, said the snake to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, now pay close attention to the sequence of events here. First, first, the snake creates this little seed of doubt, right? Did God really say you can't eat from the fruit of the garden? And already, by the way, there's a lie in there because he's not quoting God, is he? God never says you can't eat from all the fruit. Instead, he specifically says you can't eat from this tree. But he creates this little seed of doubt right off at the beginning. Did God really say this? And then he casts suspicion on God's motives. You won't die. God just is worried that you will become like him. And, and in doing so, he gives the temptation right there to become like God. And the tragic irony, of course, is that they already are like God. They are made in God's image. Which means there's another lie in here. Because the temptation is not actually to be like God. The temptation is to be God. To substitute their authority and their will and their definition of good and evil for the ones that God has given them. To reject the rule of God and substitute their own. And this then is how sin enters into the world. And you know, when we talk about sin, we think of, of what I would call, you know, little s sin, lowercase sin. And this is like, you know, the like the things that we each do individually that are that are wrong and, and that we repent of and they're not, they're, not, they're not good, right? The things that we obviously know we've committed something wrong. And when we say Jesus died on the cross for our sins, usually we're referring to the actual things that we've done. But there is a sense in Scripture, and particularly after Genesis 3, that there actually is a big S sin, and I have to say that really slowly, because otherwise I'll say something bad. But there is like a capital S sin. There is something bigger than just the individual bad things we each do, but actually there is some kind of, some kind of, 
some kind of force at work in the world in the shadows that we can't always see, that we can't. And the Bible is never actually very clear on specifically what this is, but, but it's very clear that there is something at work that is not divine and is inhuman and is evil. And that it enters the world here in this first act of idolatry. Because ultimately all sin is some form of idolatry. It is rejecting the God who made us and gives us life and, and worshiping something else. And you see, if you go back to the idea that we are made in God's image and that therefore we are God's representatives here on earth, we are representing God's rule and God's power, and we're then in, imbued with God's authority, when we commit idolatry and, and, and worship something other than God, what we're doing is we are taking the authority God is giving us and surrendering it to something else. And we give that authority over to whatever it is that we worship. Whether that's money, power, sex, whatever. We surrender our God-given authority over to it. And there is a clear sense, there's a clear sense that when Jesus dies on the cross, it's not just about dying to forgive our individual sins, but that this is God's final showdown with this capital S sin, this dark force at work in the world, and that on the cross, God confronts and defeats this power of evil permanently and breaks its hold over the world. And so when I say that, that, that actually it does seem as though the world of the Old Testament is truly a darker and more evil and more brutal time, there is a real sense to that, that the idea that on the cross, Jesus breaks the power that sin has over the world, and as a result, even though even though we are still waiting for God to finish the job, the world is a better place because we are no longer enslaved to the power of sin. Not, not little s sin, but big s sin. This dark force at work in the world in ways we can't always comprehend. And so yes, there is actually a difference often in the way that God has to deal with people in the world before the cross and after the cross. doesn't mean that God is different. It means that we are different and the world is different. And that God has done something to change that. And all of this is tied in to chapter 3. Because what will happen next, by the way, is in chapter 4, Cain murders Abel. The first consequence, really, of, of this sin. And you see from chapter 4 on that it begins to spiral out of control as violence and corruption spread further and further into the world, culminating in the flood when it has gotten so bad that God decides I've got to wipe them all out except for this guy and start over with him. And do you notice what Noah does after the flood? Right off the bat, he fails. And he fails in a really fantastic way because he pretty clearly plans it out far in advance. He plants a vineyard and then commits the sin, right? He plans it for a long time. He lets the grapes grow. He drinks the wine, gets drunk, commits a shameful act, and he fails in a garden, just like Adam did. And then it spirals out of control again, leading up to the Tower of Babel, when God has to scatter the people. And only then does he call Abraham and say, okay, I've got to fix the problem. There's a problem in the world. People keep failing. I'm going to save them all through you and through your family. And then do you notice... That, that's, that's how good of a preacher I am. The sound system's afraid of me. <laughs> then do you notice each generation of Abraham's family will fail? Not just his children, but then the generations of the actual nation of Israel, they fail and fail and fail. And each time God comes in and rescues them and gives them another chance, leading all the way up to Jesus on the cross. 
And this all begins with this one choice to reject the rule of God and the authority of God and substitute their own. And it begins really with this little simple lie. You will be like God, implying you're not like him now. You're not made in the image of God. And then there's this great sequence in the middle of chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The snake deceived me, and I ate. Notice how God gives them multiple chances to do the right thing, right? The first thing he does, he just shows up in the garden. Now, he knows what they've done. He's God. He knows they ate the fruit. So he just shows up in the garden. And here they have a chance to to take the initiative, to come to God and say, You know what, Lord, we're really sorry. We made a mistake. We ate from this tree you told us not to eat from. But what do they do? They go and hide. And, And God, of course, knowing where they are, says, Where are you? Right? Again, they've got the chance now to come forward and say, we were hiding because we were afraid because we ate from the tree. But all this is, well, we were afraid because we were naked. And then you have my favorite line in all of Scripture, who told you you were naked? I'm a 12-year-old at heart, so I laugh every time I read that. But but then, did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat from? And again, you have the chance to do the right thing and say, yes, Lord, I did. But what does Adam do? He says, well, the woman who you gave me... Right. She, she gave me the fruit and, and then I ate it right? the, but, but he, first he blames the woman then he blames God right? Lord if you hadn't given me the woman she wouldn't have been tempted to eat the fruit anyway so really God this is all on you what was I, there was a naked woman offering me fruit what was I supposed to do and then he eats the fruit and, and, and God just kind of leaves that and says, okay, well, I'll deal with you. Eve, talk to me, what would you do? And Eve says, oh, well, the serpent tricked me. And then I ate. And you know, I've actually heard plenty of scholars and theologians who would argue that this moment is actually the moment of original sin. I don't know that I agree with that, but, but it's certainly almost as bad, right? They have all these chances to come forward and tell God what they've done, and instead they lie and they cast blame on other people, and they... they, they spread division amongst themselves right off the bat, and do you see how quickly sin has taken hold of their heart? It didn't take all that long for them to turn on each other, to cast blame on everyone else and to refuse to take responsibility, to say, well, it was their fault and their fault, and God, actually, this is kind of your fault. Already, already it's begun. But the important part is, God knew what they did, And he came down to the garden anyway. He knew. And and you know, this this theme in here where they're they're naked and they're not ashamed and then they are naked and ashamed and then they clothe themselves because they're in fear. Doesn't matter. God's already seen it. And this is true for us as well. Whatever, whatever your deepest source of shame is, God already knows what it is. 
You can't hide that from him. God actually already sees you exactly as you are, exactly as you are afraid of other people seeing you, and he loves you anyway. It doesn't matter to him. All that shame and that fear that Adam and Eve felt that didn't come from God, that came from them. They put that on themselves. God is the one who came and met them in the garden in spite of it. And he closed them to comfort them. Whatever, whatever your darkest secret is, whatever your biggest source of shame is, God knows it. And God still wants to walk with you in the cool of the day. So you see, you don't have to listen to the lies that tell you, that, that, that cast doubt on God's purposes for you or cast suspicion on God's motives or say, does God really want you to do this or is God really all that good or does God really care about you or does God really love you or are you really worthy of God's love? doesn't matter. It's all lies and in reality that serpent is still talking to all of us out from the shadows. And those lies persist over throughout time. But see, we don't have to listen to them. Because the truth is God already sees you just as you are. God knows, in fact, that you are made in his image no matter what else might be true. And God loves you anyway. See, we can always... We can always choose to reject God and worship something else. But we're always worshiping something. Everyone is bowing down before some kind of altar. There is no one who is not truly worshiping something. You're either worshiping God or you're worshiping some kind of idol, but you are in worship. The difference is if you're not worshiping God, what you're doing is you are surrendering your power, your autonomy, your, your free will to be fully human and to be the person God made you to be. You're surrendering all of that to something else and giving it power over you. This is why the New Testament always uses this language of slavery to sin and death because we do let it enslave us. Whether it's yourself, you can worship yourself, or money, or sex, or power, or other people. You know, you can very easily make an idol even of your own children, of your own family member. We all know, by the way, we've all seen parents who have made idols of their children. It happens. And it's devastating in its own way. See, the, the lie, the lie is that you don't need God. The lie is that God doesn't know what's best for you. The lie is that God doesn't care about you. God doesn't want what's good for you or that God couldn't possibly love you or that God couldn't possibly redeem you. But these are nothing but lies. The truth is that God sees you exactly as you are, flaws and all. He knows each and every part of you. It is as if you are standing before him naked. He sees all of it. And he chooses to love you. And he chooses to redeem you and call you to be part of his family, of the body of Christ. And the truth is that God wants to be present with you anyway. 
And he is calling you to be his image bearer in the world. So don't believe the lies. Because all they'll do is lead you astray. Simply trust in the God who created you and in his good purposes for you. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.